This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 22, with guest Sophie Chung. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Savorova, and welcome to the show. On a mission to empower patients worldwide, back in 2015, Sophie Chung founded CUNA Medical, which stands for Accessible Healthcare for Everyone, no matter who they are and where they're based. Today, you will learn about the interplay between Western and Eastern medicine, why travel tourism is sometimes perceived negatively, and how we as a society can put humanity at the heart of the healthcare industry. For a regular supply of knowledge from some of the most interesting women living in Berlin, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Enjoy today's conversation. Sophie, it's really great to welcome you today in the studio. And so many people were actually mentioning your name to me. And to be very transparent with you, I had you in mind since January. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited to finally speak to you today. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And I feel very honored that I've been mentioned by so many people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. I know this is going to be an excellent conversation. And I would like to start today's conversation from your time studying medicine and philosophy in Vienna, where you're originally from. And during your studies, you also took courses on the interplay between Western and Eastern medicine. What intrigued you to study this? And maybe you could share some enlightenments with me on what is this interplay? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So maybe just for a little bit of context, um, I'm half Chinese. Uh, my parents are from Cambodia. And my and parts of my grandparents on my maternal side are China, and um, there is a long family history of of doctors in in my family as well. So I grew up, you know, with traditional Chinese medicine and their principles in my day to day, and it's a very different way of thinking about um, healing or staying healthy. So in Western medicine, the medical system we are used to. It's very reactive. So you go to a doctor when something is wrong with you, and then the doctor tries to fix it. While in traditional Chinese medicine, uh, the main goal is to remain healthy. So it's much more integral in your day to day. And you, you know, basically you are what you eat, for example. So, you know, in, in China, people are very, very conscious about food and nutrition and, you know, what you put in your body. So I grew up as this is part of kind of my day-to-day, -day, not knowing or not realizing that this is somewhat special or different to, uh, to other cultures. But, you know, as I, as I grew up and as I, I, I became older, um, I started to realize that kind of, you know, I grew up between two principles of healthcare. And I found that very intriguing and very fascinating because um, what I realized was that as I started to study Western medicine, because I wanted to become a doctor, that there is another medical system there that in itself is a complete scientific system and works in itself and, you know, has been, has been existing over thousands and thousands of years. And, and I realized that both medical systems had their strengths and weaknesses. And for me, it was so interesting that people didn't, didn't make use of it. There are things where you can use Western medicine uh, much better. So, for example, when it comes to surgery or when it comes to, you know, very linear diseases like bacterial infection where you can take antibiotics and then you're done. 
But many of the diseases we have are systemic. It's not one cause. It's many causes that causes a disbalance in your body. And for these uh, types of, of conditions, traditional Chinese medicine works much better because it's a more systemic system. And for me, it was really interesting that nobody was like, hey, let's, let's, let's make use of the best of both healthcare systems, right? And, and um, so my mission back then was to also put focus on the traditional Chinese medical side and, you know, bring this into more of the conscience and the public discussion. And in your personal life, do you apply both of these approaches as well? Yes, absolutely. So, for example, uh, a little bit over a year ago, I, um, I had a baby. And there is this, uh, you know, this, uh, this, uh, this concept of postpartum care. And not just, in, it's really interesting because in almost any uh, traditional culture, you have like this principle of postpartum care and what you're supposed to do after you've delivered a baby because, you know, the, the, the female body is just, or the motherly body is in so much change and turmoil and things like these. What I found was that the concept in Western medicine exists, but it's not as defined, not as strong. Whereas in traditional Chinese medicine, it's very, very, it's, it's very clear, it's very defined. And so I actually had my mom, you know, come and brew those soups and teas and things. And I happened to be in New York when I was pregnant and there's, you know, a big Chinatown there. So I actually went to get the herbs and things because um, I just, you know, I, I do believe in a very old scientific system. And uh, I do believe that there is a big systemic world to your body and you don't have to understand everything. But, you know, in kind of when there is evidence, then um, there is some substance to it. So so definitely, I delivered my baby by cesarean section, which is a very Western method. Um, and my postpartum care was very, very traditional. Wow. This is uh, yeah, a combination of both. And yeah. I think it's a great topic to research on because, as you said, a lot of people don't, they're either used to one system or the other. And I think being a little bit open-minded and exploring how this two can interplay would be an advantage for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And especially because in the Western world, um, traditional Chinese medicine is often viewed as non-scientific or as esoteric or, you know, something that doesn't live up to the standards of Western medicine. And that's why I studied this. And that's why I applied principles of philosophy of science to prove that it is a scientific system um, and it's based on scientific principles. I read a few interviews with you, and I love how you speak with passion, even right now, being also a founder but and a doctor and emergency doctor in the past. Can you tell me how all of this you did during your study times, um, combining this very heavy-focused medicine studies and then also working as emergency doctor? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so just to be clear, I, um, I'm a fully licensed doctor, and i I was on my way to become a cardiologist, and as part of that, I was an emergency doctor, but I never finished my residency to become a cardiologist so that nobody, you know, comes up to me and go like, oh, you're not a real specialty doctor. So that's uh, just to, to, to make clear to this point. But I spend a lot of time in the emergency room as part of my, my education. And um, for me, it was absolutely fascinating. It's I, I think this is, you know, parts of where the core of medicine happens when emergencies happen. And um, 
Also here, you know, when you work in the emergency room, I'd say 80% of cases that come in are non-emergencies. Okay, These because are... when I hear emergency, I have like already stress, you know, I <laughs> exactly. have these crazy movies like, yeah, in yeah, front yeah. of my eyes. So, um, I mean, reality is not quite like that. So when you work in the emergency room, you get a lot of drunk people, you get a lot of people who need a normal doctor, but, you know, didn't go to the doctor. And then on the weekend, they feel like they, they need a doctor now. Um, you get a lot of um, sports accidents. So, you know, Saturday and Sunday afternoon, you get all the football <laughs> kid accidents and all of that. So th that is part of emergency room as well. It's not like in the TV series where it's like adrenaline 24-7 all the time. But you also have these moments and um, they are not that rare where you get really heavy car accidents or where you can or where you get, you know, drug overdoses. Or, for example, when I worked in the U.S., where you get gunshot wounds into, into the emergency room. And this is, this is when you have to act now. Like every second counts. And this is when the team has to work together. And this is when you have to be fully focused as a doctor and like make every decision the right way and really try to save somebody's life. And I feel like this is, this is at the core where you have direct impact. And this is what really, I think, drove me and many of my colleagues to be at the front line and be at the forefront to have impact in what you do. How do you train that psychological state of mind that you, in an emergency situation, you don't panic, but as a doctor, you stay focused and you know exactly what you're going to do step by step? It's practice. It's all practice. So that's why you go through six years of medical school. That's why you go through at least six years of, of specialization um, residency after you, you, you graduate. And, you know, in the end, you have kind of your brain is wired in algorithms. When somebody comes in, you check for life signs, you do this, you do that, you know, you push them into an x-ray or whatever, and you know exactly what to do. So that's one part. And the second part, at least in the hospital, you're never alone. So you always have a team. You always have a team that works together. You always have somebody to, you know, kind of to turn to or somebody to help or to ask. And um, that's kind of the second part. But um, in the end, it's, it's practice and wiring your, your brain to work when you need it to work. And for the people who would like to practice this, but unfortunately, maybe they are not studying or going to medical school, how can they practice this? Is there ways? Yeah, absolutely. And I can only recommend everyone to do so. You can get the first eight courses at um, different uh, NGOs like the Red Cross and, and, and other organizations. You would have to you know, research who is the local provider for you. But I can only highly recommend do, doing this on a regular basis. You know, you don't know when you need it. And uh, when you need it, you should, you should have it. And those are basic things, again, like checking for life science, knowing how CPR works um, and all of that. So that's one way to do. And uh, yeah, secondly is, is, you know, constantly or from time to time thinking about that. And I, I do that um, from time to time where, especially so for example, when I, it might sound weird, but when I like, before I get on a plane, this is where I, I'm being triggered. I go like, okay, when an emergency happens on the, on a plane, like what, what, what would I do if, if I was the only doctor? And, and thankfully you're, you're hardly ever the only doctor on the plane, but you know, playing this uh, through your mind is, is really important as well. The curious part, Sophie, is your transition from being a doctor into management consulting. So before you became a founder, 
Would you embrace such an unusual career path for other graduates with medical background and to go into management consulting? It depends. It depends on you know what your life goal is or what your career goal is. Of course, if your career goal is to to become a professor and be a chief doctor somewhere, um, it might not be it might not be necessary to do so. But but I think if you become a doctor and you feel like there should be more to it, and you're curious about you know other things, I would highly recommend doing that. For me, it was. It was exactly that. I became a doctor. I loved what I was doing. I wanted to become a doctor. Um, but at the same time, I was just curious what else is out there. And I had the opportunity to do an internship um, in one of the leading management consulting companies. And, and then they made me an offer. And for, for me, it was not a decision pro or con medicine or um, you know for or against being a doctor. For me, it was almost like a journey to discover something else before I would decide to come back to medicine. That decision never happened until now, but that wasn't by design to leave medicine forever back then. And then you mentioned that you had those professional steps you took, and partially this is also uh, working in the management consulting firm, and all those took you into the direction of founding a company. How would you define those steps that brought you to realization, okay, I want to become a founder? Well, looking back, it was became very clear to me early on that in German you would say Freigeist, um, that you know I'm like I, I have this like free spirit and um, and as you probably know in medicine, every it's everything except for <laughs> free spirit. So it's very hierarchical. It's very structured. You know, opinions are not are not appreciated, um, and all of that and. Uh, for me, it was very clear early on that one day I will have to do my own thing. But back then, that would have meant for me to open my own practice, medical practice. It would have meant to build my own little clinic or so. So I think that entrepreneurial spirit was always in me. That was also the reason why I was so into science. Um, and I think, you know, being a scientist had, has a lot about it has a lot in common with entrepreneurial spirit because you're pushing the boundaries. You're questioning the status quo. You're asking yourself, what else is there? And what can I do to improve something? So I think, you know, that looking back, that was always in me at the core. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't identify it as, or I couldn't name it as entrepreneurial spirit. But looking back, I think that was always kind of a driver for, for, for my passion and for kind of the, the next steps. When I worked um, in management consulting, that was kind of in the early teens uh, years, so 2012, 13, around then. This is when a startup became a thing in Germany. This is when Rocket Internet rose. This is when Zalando became big. And all of a sudden, you know, you have this, this new category of digital companies that were just created and were disrupting something. And brought something new into into a traditional economy you would have not been able to imagine just a few years before, and that thought got me completely hooked in the context of healthcare. I was back there. I was like, "Oh my god, digital health! Like there are I'm so <laughs> many, yeah, there's so many things you know where you could use or lever digitalization to improve healthcare because healthcare is so backwards. It's so manual." 
It's so inefficient. It's so intransparent. And that thought alone got me so hooked that for me, it was clear I needed, I needed to go into that startup world. Um, but back then, there was nothing in digital health in the European landscape. So the only thing I could do was to leave Europe and go to the US. And this, is, this was my decision to leave management consulting and then you know, not go back, become a doctor again, but instead move into the digital startup world. But then actually founding your own company, you came back to Berlin. That's right. So why was that? So I left management consulting and I moved to New York. I uh, worked for one of the leading digital health companies there for almost two years. And then the time was right for me to start my own company. I had this idea. I had this vision. My fingers were itching and And also kind of the stars aligned. And I think sometimes in life that happens and you just have to be open to it. So the stars aligned in the way that I found an investor who was willing to invest in me. I had this, you know, this idea that became clearer and clearer and clearer. It was also about time for me to just do kind of a switch in careers. And so that was the point where I decided to start my own company. And then the question was, where to do so. And I could have done that in New York. But there were a couple of reasons why that, that kind of pulled me back to, to Berlin. First of all, I'm a European citizen. I grew up in Europe. I love Europe. I love European values. I think that there's a huge difference to, to the US. Secondly, it was much cheaper to start a company in Berlin because you got so much more for the money that you've raised because wages were lower, rent was lower. So I knew that, you know, if I was, and I raised half a million in my first round, I could work much longer and get more out of it doing this in Berlin rather than in New York. And uh, yeah, and third of all, um, with, you know, the money was also talent. I have experienced the insane and crazy war for talent in the US. And I knew that, you know, Berlin has great talent as well, and it might be, might not be as competitive. So really a lot of reasons for me to come back. And I've not regretted that, um, that decision ever since. So on the mission to empower patients worldwide, you founded CUNA Medical, which gives everyone the chance to access great healthcare, no matter who they are and where they're based. Sophie, can you tell me more, how did you came to the idea of founding particularly CUNA Medical and the platform which serves people worldwide? Absolutely. So Let's take a step back and think about how we consume, quote unquote, healthcare. So if, for example, in my case, over a year ago, I had to go for a cesarean section for, you know, my baby. So I was, as, as a patient or as a consumer of the healthcare system, I was tasked with the exercise to choose the right doctor, the right hospital, even the right time for that to do so. And um, when you compare it with you know, other places in life where you have to make a consumer decision, like buying a car, you have all the information at hand to make that decision. You know which color to take, you know the engine, you might be even to test drive it, you have a picture, you can talk to others who have driven the same car, and all of that. But when it comes to your health, which is one of the most important things in life, you have no basis for decision. And all you can do is sign up for a hospital 
They sometimes don't even tell you who the doctor or the surgeon is who is gonna cut, going to cut you open that day. And that is, that can't be it. And you know, I've, as a doctor, I've seen too many patients being pushed through that healthcare system, not getting the right explanations, not being able to make their own decisions, not being able to have a choice and agreeing to surgeries and and treatments that they are not fully convinced that this is the best thing for them, but because of the lack of choice, they just went for it. And I feel like that's the most horrible situation you can put a person in. But this happens every single day to millions of people. And I think you gotta, you gotta change that. You have to empower patients. You have to communicate with them what their options are. You have to make them feel confident when they are navigating through healthcare. You have to give them the empowerment that they made this decision and that they are, that can be, that they are assured that this is the best they can get. And so for me, it was clear from the very beginning that I wanted to create a platform that was centered around the patient and asking what the patient actually needs or wants. Uh, for me, it was clear I wanted to create a platform that worked for every patient in this world, not just a German platform for Germans or an American platform for Americans. I wanted to create a platform where every patient can find a solution for them. And I wanted to create a platform that uh, works for many different treatment categories or not just, you know, one. Um, I wanted it to be something that was very, very general, but can reach as many patients as possible. That was the vision and still is. And that was the fundamental idea behind CUNA Medical. So it was not the bureaucratic side of healthcare or when you spoke earlier that things are very slow, this was not bothering you as much. What was bothering you is that the patient was not having the access to the healthcare they need. And this is where your heart was kind of pumping for. And there was no other solutions existing on the market or? Absolutely. So for me, it was about democratizing access to care. Nobody should be getting better care only because they have more money or because they have the better health insurance or because, you know, they have better friends who can get them into some sort of special treatment or because they have more information. I think, you know, all of that should be democratized. And again, from my personal experience um, throughout my career in healthcare, I have seen that no healthcare system really does that. I'm a strong believer that the change within healthcare is not going to come within the system, within politics, from politicians. I think, just like in many other industries, change will come from outside. It will come from a startup. It will come from a digital innovation. And I wanted to have a part in it. Before we touch on that discussion, because I find this also very, very interesting, could you explain how you qualify doctors for CUNA Medical and how do you find hospitals? And of course, in the end of the day, how your customers, patients, walk through this system and process to their final healthcare treatment? So for me, it was always clear that the doctors and hospitals that you can find on our platform as a patient is part of our product. So our product is not just the technology, but it's also you know, the doctors you can book and where you can go and get your treatment. So that also meant that you have to put or 
yeah, you, you have to, to put the doctor quality or the matter of doctor quality on top of everything you do. We have developed a scoring algorithm. We call it the Cuno score that allows us to evaluate doctors across different nations, across different treatment categories. And it t- takes over 21 different quality criteria into account. There's different scoring, uh, different data layers behind that. But that allows us to very precisely predict doctor quality. And uh, with that, also select the ones we want to work with. And when it comes to hospitals? So uh, hospitals are very similar. Um, Usually we put the doctor in the center because the fact is you have great and not so great doctors everywhere, in every hospital, in every ward, in every country. So it's not enough to choose a hospital to work with, or it's not enough to choose a country where you want to go and work with the doctors there. Our approach is to really choose the doctor you want to work with and hence in as a consequence also offer to patients. And therefore, you know, we start with the doctor and then we approach the hospital to cooperate with us. So the customer goes to the website, to the platform. I guess they have to leave their personal details there. Um, They have to go through also some kind of check. And how do they search for the doctor? And do they specify country or do they specify the treatment they need? It really depends on what you need as a a patient. Some patients uh, already know what they need and they specify the country where they want to go or stay. Some patients already know the doctor and they book the doctor directly. Some patients need more guidance and they are are still researching and are still trying to find out which treatment is the right one for them. Uh, And some people and patients have a certain budget they can afford, and that might be their primary criteria. So it really depends. But the nice thing about what I just said is that our solution works for all of them. And that's, that's kind of, you know, the magic behind it. This almost feels a little bit like Airbnb, where you can put a different filter and then you select based on your, well, criteria, which is... Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a mix of, of Airbnb and online dating, I feel like, <laughs> because on the one hand, Airbnb, because uh, you are a platform that pools some sort of supply. And in our, our case, it's medical supplies so the doctors and hospitals on what platform globally, and you can choose and you can book them. But at the same time, there's also... Um, some, you know, matching logic in between. So when you ask me, like, how, how do I choose my doctor? Uh, on QNO Medical, you can type in, you know, how, for how long you've had the problem, how old you are, which medication you take, if there is budget restrictions, if, you know, there's kind of localization restrictions and things like these. And based on that, we match you with a couple of options. So it's a little bit of a mix of, of Airbnb and, and online dating, I'd like to say. I think healthcare is still a very delicate topic. I'm curious, how did you establish the trust with your customers at first when, let's say, you were not so known in the industry? Trust is the core of what we do. Um, at Cuno Medical, we have to say what we do, our core product is creating trust. And trust is something you have to earn with every single thing you do. It's not just one thing and then boom, somebody trusts you, right? Like trust is something that's super hard to earn and super easy to lose. And that is something that we put effort in from the very beginning since I started QNO Medical with every step we do. So uh, things are like putting patients first, excellent service, being honest. You know, we have patients who sometimes even send us requests for treatments that might be illegal 
or not available or not the right ones for them. And, um, you know, our medical experts will tell them that this is not something they can serve or book. Or, you know, you can also book plastic surgery through our platform as one of many treatment categories. And sometimes you, we get requests where, you know, you couldn't really defend that from a medical perspective. And um, this is where we clearly draw the line and also tell the patients that oh, it's usually not us, it's usually the doctors who tell the patients that um, they're not suitable for treatment. So being genuine and, and honest, especially when it comes to medicine, being fact-based, being at the forefront of the latest scientific research is really important, but also being there when the patient needs you, when you know they call us or when they send us an email or something like that. We make sure that we get back to the patient as soon as we can. We have built systems in place so when you call us, the first time somebody picks, like a real human being picks up the phone, and when you call us again the second time, the same human being picks up the phone. Because we want to make sure that, you know, and that has to do with trust. It's a delicate topic, as you said, and you might spoke to, to a person and have spoken about your medical problems, and then you call a second time. You don't want to re tell everything and you've already, you know, built a relationship with one person. So those are all the details that we've built and we keep building to keep somebody's trust. And that's something we've earned over the past few years and um, something we are very proud of, but also something that we hold and keep up very, very high. I also read about the term medical tourism, and I can imagine this This is a little bit, or quite more than a little bit, it is a medical tourism where people get the chance to travel to get a medical treatment. Can you explain why it's uh, oftentimes negatively perceived, and how can we break the stigma around medical tourism? Sure. Let me um, also just quickly explain. Half of our, our patients stay within their own country or okay. where they are. And half actually get treatments cross-border. Okay, That's so they how we don't call have them. To, they don't have to travel. And sometimes people can just stay also, let's say, in Berlin and find the treatment here. That's right. Because for us, our priority is to help you find the right doctor. And the right doctor could be the one next door. But the right doctor could also be somebody on a different continent and everything in between. And this is, this is what we are about. So the consequence, kind of the fact that some patients travel to, to see their doctor is the consequence of helping you to find the right doctor rather than the other way around. But back to your question. Yes, so medical tourism as a term sometimes comes up um, within the context of describing our business. Again, it's, it's part of our business, but it comes up. I'm kind of schizophrenic about that term because on one end, it kind of describes part of our business very precisely. Um, on the other hand, it comes with some sort of preoccupied image or you know, that is negatively affected or comes with some shadiness. And I think there are two reasons for that. First of all, unfortunately, there are these so-called black sheeps in the market as well. So people, there are people and patients who go abroad for very affordable, very cheap treatments and come back and didn't get the treatment they should have gotten, uh, were treated by non-qualified medical staff and all of that. And secondly, these cases are being blown up by the media. Um, so these are the cases that you read about. These are the cases that you see. But nobody reports on the millions of other patients who have traveled abroad and came back and are happy because it's not a story. And um, I think there is a skewed public perception. At the same time, I want to emphasize that these cases exist as well. 
And I think for us at Cuna Medical, this is I see this as a chance and as an opportunity to make cross-border healthcare, how we like to call it, safer and more transparent and a thing. Because in the end, you know, what we do is bringing additional options to every patient. What we do is bringing more transparency to every patient. So medical tourism, if you want so, is a great thing because it gives you more options. It gives you more transparency. And as a patient, you can choose. You have choice to do so. The critical part about that is you need to make it safe. You have to make it transparent. You have to streamline the process and all of that. And that's, that's what we do. So for me, I hope that in a few years from now, and by that, I mean one or two years and not five or six <laughs> years or 10 years, there is going to be a change in public perception because people start, and we see those patients already, people start to realize that this, this only comes with, with advantages rather than disadvantages. Absolutely. I think changing that mindset with actually and speaking about the good cases and people actually getting treatment they were looking for, this should be highlighted more in the media rather than running after big stories, <laughs> which only scare people away. I understand that as also you mentioned, it's your personal mission to bring back the focus to patients with CUNA Medical. And I'm just a little bit puzzled. Why is this is still not the case for the healthcare industry at times? And why are just so few people like you that want to bring that, you wrote it even, put humanity at the heart of the medical industry? I think there are quite some people who are trying to do that. And I'm absolutely happy that, and we need more people to try to do that. But healthcare is, is a tough field. Um, healthcare is super complex. There are a lot of stakeholders involved. You have, you know, next to politics, you have insurance companies, you have hospitals, you have doctors, you have pharma companies. Every one of these stakeholders have different interests. In addition to the nature of healthcare in itself, like diseases, human beings, those are so many moving parts and it's highly complicated, it's highly complex. In addition to that, it's a highly emotional topic. So you have like, you know, everything that could, that could make things harder in one place. I think in no other place or in no other industry, you have that level of complexity going, going through that. And um, so I think that's, that's the main reason why it might not be so obvious that um, there are actually a lot of people who are, who are working on this. At the same time, in the bigger picture, as I said, there are so many stakeholders involved. If you noticed, the only stakeholder I didn't mention was the patient because the patient lobby is super, super weak. It's the weakest among other powerful stakeholders. Again, pharma companies, insurance companies, you know, large hospitals, politicians, and all of them have different interests, but nobody really is on the side of the patient and nobody lobbies the patient side because patients are too fragmented. Everyone individually, every patient needs healthcare at a different point. So also it's really hard to start a movement and you know rally against something because today this person is in the hospital and might be annoyed about something and then only tomorrow the other person is in the hospital. So I think that's, that's one of the main reasons why it hasn't you know, taken so, up so much speed as you might imagine. But I think there's a lot of opportunity now with digitalization. And to be honest, also with you know, what happened in the pandemic, where all of a sudden the matter of healthcare became a matter of society and of everyone's lives. And 
I've said it at the beginning of, of the pandemic. I, I, I said, I'm convinced that the world after Corona will look very similar to the world before Corona, with the only difference that healthcare will become much more important to everyone. And you mentioned already that startups is something you think will foster this change. What else can foster this change and how we as a society can bring our impact, whether it's individual or whether it's a group? I think on the individual side, it's being open to new ideas as a, as a user, as a patient, as a consumer. As in any industry, the consumer dictates. Um, it's not as strong in healthcare, again, because you have other powerful forces. But in the end, it's the patient who dictates to what happens there. We as patients, and all of us will be patients at one point, we need to form a stronger voice. And we need to be in a place where we can demand things as well. If you are not okay with how it works in healthcare, you should have the choice to go and see another doctor. If there are digital apps that you want to use and want to have prescribed, you should ask your doctor to prescribe that because this is, this is what will lead to the doctor realizing that there is actually demand for something new, for something innovative. So that's as a patient where you can make an impact every single day. As somebody in the startup scene, encourage founders, encourage people who want to work in digital health. I think it's one, if not the most impactful place where you can be at the moment. We need more people who start companies. We need more people who think about the patient, but not just founders. We need people who join their teams and commit their time and expertise to that. So encourage people to do so. And the more, the better, the more, the merrier. And at last, I think as society and also as you know, anyone who has a say in, in what is happening, we need to create a world where we need to realize that healthcare is one of the most important things that a society can cherish. And the way we treat healthcare systems and workers in healthcare at the moment, and again, it became very clear during the pandemic, is not sustainable. And we also need to make a change there. Sophie, your words are so encouraging. I mean, you gave me goosebumps. I feel like I'm going to be right now the main ambassador of everything you said, but also to be more conscious of how I approach healthcare. But now, drum roll, please, because here comes my last question, which I love to address, and I love to get inspiration from wonderful women who join me in the studio. Sophie, who is the woman that comes to your mind that you would define as an author of her own achievements? So I know you're asking this question every time. And as a big fan of this podcast, I also thought about this. It's clearly my, my mom. It's my mother. My mom is a refugee um, from a war. She lived through a war, for, um, through a war through five years and was uh, one of the few survivors. And I think she, you know, she's one of the people I look up to and every day. And I feel like she has all the reasons to hate life. She has all the reasons to capitulate. She has all the reasons to play, blame others for her state, for, you know, what's happened to her and everything. But she doesn't because she's an author of her own achievements and she's, she's somebody who's not giving up. And that's, yeah, what I look up to every day. <sighs> I'm touched. Thank you so much for bringing her up and wishing you all the best and also to your mom and to your family. And uh, thank you so much for coming to uh, the studio today. And thank you, Sophie. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.